Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Uh, tonight we are going to talk about the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, how, just how many of you are familiar with that phrase, rich young ruler? You've heard this story probably before. You've heard of him. Um, the, the, it's the story of this guy, um, and, and Naya, I think, read this section, who comes up to Jesus, sincerely asks, actually Clay read this part, uh, sincerely asks what he must uh, do to inherit eternal life, um, but he leaves sad because he was a man of great wealth, and Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give to the poor. Now, on the surface level, um, this is, yes, a story about money, right? Like, this is a, about a rich guy who wasn't willing to part with his wealthy goods. Um, and, and yes, uh, it, is, it is right and good to talk about what this story has to reveal to us about the Christian ethic of money. But tonight, what I want us to do is look at the bigger picture that's actually happening here um, and, and the bigger story uh, that, that's actually happening here. Because yes, this is about money, um, but what this story is really about is what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God, right? What the story is really about is what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God. And, and for us to be able to kind of really engage this story in that way, we need to do a little bit of, of background. Um, so if you think back to last semester, what we did is we studied Mark 1 through uh, Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 8, verse 21, all right? Um, and and the, the kind of story that we walked through is that Jesus um, comes onto the scene and he's preaching the good news about what? The good news of the... Anyone? Anyone? Good news of the... Good news is gospel. Good news, the gospel of the, starts with a K, dumb of God. The good news of the kingdom of God. Good job, guys. Oh, man, killing it tonight. Um, <clears throat> the good news of the kingdom of God. Um, right? That in, in, uh, if you remember, this is, this is like the good news of the kingdom of God is not just like, oh, this good thing that's going to happen. This was the hope of the Israelites for, for not just centuries, but like millennium. That, that one day, um, God would come in and he would redeem and renew and reconcile all things by restoring Israel as a nation state, uh, as in the days of David and as in the days of Solomon, right? Like this was the great hope of the Israelites. Um, and and the, what they did was they kind of split uh, the, the way they thought about the world was that it was split into two ages, right? There was this present age um, and then there was the age to come. And the age to come would happen once the kingdom of God was ushered in. So this present age is an age that is marked by, by sin and death and decay, and for the Israelites, exile and, and oppression, right? Like they were, as Jews, they lived under um, the oppressive regime of the Romans, right? Like, so like this was the, this is what this present age was about, right? Sin and death and decay. But the age to come was one that was marked by eternal life inside of God's reign with his people, right? Like once the kingdom of God came, the age to come was here, all right? And it was cataclysmic. It happened all at once. It was, it was really crazy. Um, and then this was the hope that they held out and that the Messiah would be the one to make all this happen, right? And so they had very clear expectations, right? Like if you'd hoped for something, think about anything that you've hoped for for a long time, anything you've hoped for for a long time, you, you start to cultivate expectations about what that's going to look like, all right? And so they had, they had cultivated these expectations about uh, what it's going to look like, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he's preaching that the good news of the kingdom of God, like repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, all right? Like that, that's kind of what's being preached here. And um, as he's preaching this, on, on, in some ways, Jesus kind of fits the mold of their expectations, he has shown great power over, over death, right? He has literally raised a girl who had died back to life. That was my child who's making that noise. Um, 
I'm supposed to like inherit, uh, and solicit laughter, like you know. Oh my goodness, the y'all are y'all are dead tonight. Uh, the, um, he uh, he showed power over uh, the demons, right? He cast out spirits. He showed power over decay, right? Anyone who was sick came up to him, man. They would, they they immediately got hit, uh, got well, right? Um, but in some ways, Jesus doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't fit the expectations that the people had for him as the Messiah, right? He, he often talked about caring for Gentiles. He touched lepers, which is not something you did uh, as a good Jew. Um, and, and he often was found eating with sinners, right? So much so that, that they called him a glutton and a drunkard. And all this left the crowds clamoring for more of him, right? The, the, the people, the crowds loved Jesus. It left his disciples very confused, and it left the religious elite wanting to kill him, right? They, in, in chapter 4, I think, they, they start, or chapter 3, they start scheming to kill Jesus with the Herodians. And this all comes to a head in the middle of chapter 8, right, which is where we began this semester. Jesus pulls his confused disciples away from the clamoring crowds, and he tells them that, yes, I am the Messiah, but here's what that means, that I'm going to have to be killed at the hands of the very religious elite, uh, elite that you think I'm supposed to mobilize to overthrow the Romans. He says, I have to go die at the hands of the religious elite. Now, next week, Ben uh, Waycaster is going to teach on Mark chapter 11. This is the story of the triumphal entry. Jesus, uh, what we know is like Palm Sunday, right? Um, it's this, this moment where... Um, this is the moment where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And here's the thing. It's the first day of Jesus' last week on, uh, of his life. It's the first day of the last week of Jesus' life, all right? And so everything in between then, everything between chapter 8, verse 22, where we began the semester, and where we are next week, is this time of great inner tumult for the disciples, all right? This is this time where they're, they're confused. They're trying to wrap their heads around the, the, this news that Jesus is not like who they thought he was, that he's not going to be someone who's going to go in and overthrow the Romans, but he's going to be someone who's going to die at the hands of the people who he's supposed to mobilize to overthrow the Romans. And then they're going to have to start, and they're grappling with what are the implications of that on their lives, which, by the way, like there's a lot of implications on that on their lives, right? What does he tell them? You must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And as all this is happening, Jesus goes around with his disciples and he predicts his death two more times. Like, this is like, he's like, guys, this is an inescapable fact of life. Like, I'm going to die. And he says crazy things like, you know, you're going to find your life by losing it. And the, the last really are first. And it's better to go through life maimed than to have our eyes and hands and feet uh, attached but risk hell. I mean, like, these are the kind of things that Jesus is saying. It's not very comforting. But that's not the, the kind of advice that you want to get when you're going through a tough time in your life, when you're going through this, this inner tur turmoil that they're going through. And so tonight, um, what I want us to do is I want us to, to, to uh, look at the text that Clay and I read for us, but I want us to do so through the lens of the disciples. Like, what were they thinking and, and feeling as all of this was taking place, all right? And I think as we do that, one of the things that we're going to see is that the unexpected kingdom, right, the kingdom of God is... is, is manifesting itself in ways that the people around did not expect, right? And so the unexpected kingdom is received in unexpected ways, all right? If we look through the eyes of the, this story, through the eyes of the disciples, that's what we'll see, that the unexpected kingdom is received in unexpected ways. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to get out your Bible, uh, get out your phone, and go to your Bible app, and turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, and we're going to pick up in verse 13, all right? 
So uh, since Clay um, already read this for us, uh, I'm not going to read this again. But this is the story about the little children, all right? And people are bringing uh, little children to Jesus, and they're placing them on their laps. And when we, we kind of read this story and we hear this story, the first thing we think is, oh, how cute, right? Like everyone turn their heads and look back at Naomi. Everyone just look back at Naomi. Everyone say with me, oh, how cute. Oh, how cute, right? I mean, oh, how adorable, right? How innocent, how pure, how, um, how, how creative and, and carefree a child, child, children are, right? Like, that's what we, we, we think of when we hear this, right? We have this very romantic view of children in our Western society. Actually, one, um, one, new, uh, one uh, journalist actually wrote that, like, we live in, he calls it a kindergarten. So kinder means children's the German word for kid, like kindergarten. We live in a kindergarten being the word for uh, anyone? Government. Government, good job. We live in like the, under the tyranny of children, right? Like by the way, like if you just think about this, like, you, like your parents like lived at the whim of your schedule growing up probably, right? Like uh, we live in a kindergarten. We, we, we very much see kids as virtuous. Um, but, but here's the thing. Um, and so it's very easy for us to hear this story and Jesus is gonna say, you know, you need to be like these kids. And so we think to ourselves, oh, we need to be carefree and we need to be pure and innocent just like kids are pure and that's how we receive the kingdom. If that's what we're doing, we are reading this text wrong, okay? Because here's the thing. In first century uh, Israel, the way they thought about kids was not, oh, how pure and innocent and carefree and creative. It was how insignificant. How insignificant. If you were a child, you were at the bottom of the social ladder. You were expendable if you were a child, all right? One thing that, this is crazy. Uh, this, is, this is a law in Roman society. You could, uh, if you were a father, you could choose to kill your child, I think, up until the age of four. It was called the rule of life and death. Children were expendable, all right? They were empty-handed. They brought nothing to the table, right? Like, this is the way they were viewed. Like, they don't bring, like, all they are is free labor. Like, they, they don't really bring anything. They don't contribute to society yet. They're, they're expendable. They are empty-handed, and they are fragile. Children are fragile. Six out of ten children died before the age of 16 in, uh, at, at this time in the Roman Empire. I mean, just wrap your head around that. That's, that's what this is talking about, all right? So this isn't parents placing their cute, innocent, perfect little kids on, the, on Santa's lap, you know, and getting the photo. You know, that's not the picture that's being painted here. What's, what's being painted here is that, that these parents are bringing their fears and their anxieties and their worries to Jesus. They're not exactly sure who he is, right? Some say he's a prophet. Some say that he's a priest. Some are saying even that he might be the Messiah. But the one thing that they know is that he's close to God. And we want to invoke God's blessing on our children's lives. Because, man, we are worried, right? Six out of ten don't make it to 16. The disciples see these children, these people bringing children to Jesus, and they think to themselves, well, we need to begin to act as Jesus bouncers, all right? Like, what are children? But expendable, empty-handed, and fragile. Jesus is the exact opposite of that, and we, therefore, as his disciples, are also the exact opposite of that. We, like Jesus, are important and significant, right? We're influential. We, we have purpose. We're with the Messiah, for crying out loud. We've got better things to do than to be with expendable, empty-handed, and fragile human beings. 
Jesus rebukes them, right? He takes the kids and he says, it isn't just that he says the kingdom of God, of God belongs to such as these, but he says, it is only people that are like these children, these expendable, empty-handed, fragile children. It is only people like them that can receive the kingdom of God, that can enter the kingdom of God. If you're a disciple and you just push these kids away and Jesus doesn't just say, it isn't just that he says that you, it, it's good to be like these kids, but that the only way to receive the kingdom is to be like these kids. What's going through your mind? If you're one of the disciples, what's going through your mind at this point? Confusion, right? Like at, at least, at minimum, you are confused. You're like, come on, Jesus, we, we've got better things to do, right? What else? Yeah, like, 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 well, yeah, like, why, why would we like, like, uh, waste our time with this? Like, and why would we like put ourselves in like, the company of such vulnerable beings? Yeah, yeah, that's good. What else? Your disciples, like, what's going through your mind? Yeah. Yeah, like they think they're doing the right thing, right? Like, it's easy to be hard on the disciples. They think they're doing the right thing. Jesus was important, he was influential, he did have better things to do, right? Like, it is not a lie that they're living in when they think that, right? So yeah, they may be mad at him. Anyone else? What, what else might the disciples be thinking? I think, uh, uh, on some level, they're, like, both surprised and not surprised. Like, at this point, you know, like, at this point in their journey, like, Jesus has done this enough to them. You know, like, I mean, if, if you've been with us through this whole journey, like, Jesus is just, like, it's just, he's, Mark is not kind to the disciples, right? Um, he, he is, he's not kind. And that's because Peter's not kind to himself, right? Like, Pete, you can imagine, who's the one that, who's the one that shooed the kids away? It was Peter, right? You know, like, um, and, you know, geez, we got better things to do. Um, so here's the thing. So this story really matters, all right? The key is, it is the expendable, it is the empty-handed, and it is the fragile that receive the kingdom of God. And hear this, no one else. All right? And this is going to set up the next story that we're about to read. Right? This, this story kind of takes place in three segments. There's a story with the children, and then we're going to read the story of the rich young ruler, and then the disciples are going to be really confused and mad and like, just what in the world's happening. And then Jesus is going to have this conversation with them at the end, and he's going to try to like explain everything that's going on to them. All right? So this is the first story. The second story is the story of the rich young ruler. All right? So Mark chapter 10. Uh, pick up in verse 17, all right? So just let's just, let's just read this together. Um, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Where does that come from, by the way? Ten Commandments. That's the second half of the Ten Commandments. Good job. By the way, which one does it exclude in the second half? Do not. It's the last one. What? I just, no one spoke loud enough. <laughs> yes, it's do not covet. What did you say? Do not disturb. <laughs> All right, Ben, you're fired from the RC. I had to break it to you. The, um, <laughs> That is funny. <laughs> uh, 
but you're fired nonetheless. All right, so he like gives him this list of the Ten Commandments, the second half. Teacher, uh, which by the way, do not covet matters, all right? He's about to ask him if he's coveting. Teacher, he's uh, declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy, all right? Pick up on that children imagery. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Uh, this, the man's face fell because he was a man of great wealth. All right. Now, when we hear this story, uh, if you're anything like me, you, you are really tempted to just go ahead and write off the rich young ruler. All right. Like this guy, you know, oh, he's just so greedy. He's coveted, co covetousness. Uh, he, you know, he practices, co he's coveting. He, he, that was so difficult, the word coveting. <laughs> Who knew there were so many forms? The, um, uh, I can make my apprentices laugh. That's why I pay them right there. You see the laughter, y'all? That's what I want from the rest of the crowd. Um, so, but like we, we tend to write this guy off way too quickly, right? But I mean, think about it. He has an amazing posture. Like, we never see anyone approach Jesus with, with, with such a good posture. Usually it's the Pharisees approaching Jesus, and they are scheming, and they have a question that they want to ask Jesus so that they can trip him up so that they can justifiably kill him. Like, that's usually the people that approach Jesus. This guy is sincere, right? He's desperate enough to go fall at Jesus' feet, call him good teacher, and ask a question. Also, he's a good guy. Right? Like he, he's not kidding. When he says, like, all of these I've kept since I was a boy, it, these are, the, the Ten Commandments are like the summary of the entire law, the, the entire Jewish law, which, like, some scholars say there's about 613 laws. Like, you can actually keep them all. Like, it, uh, it says of John the Baptist's parents that they were blameless, right? Like, it's not that they were perfect, but they had, like, if they sinned, they made the appropriate sacrifices. And, like, they were self-aware enough to recognize that they had sinned. Like, that's what he's talking about, right? And that he wasn't consistently... Uh, you know, breaking any of these commandments. This guy's a good guy. He isn't just at Connect, but he's probably at Sunday morning class and worship and small group. He probably even leads one of, one of if, you know, if he was an RFC member, he'd be one of you who leads a, a prayer group. Um, and he's one of these guys who, who's going to live out his life in a respectable way in, in between each of these services. He's not just another legalistic Pharisee coming up to Jesus, and he's not just some random rich guy. I mean, if you've ever read Mark, you've, you've never read, and Jesus looked at the Pharisee and loved him. Never read, I can guarantee. Actually, this is the only place in Mark we see that Jesus loves anybody. The entire book of Mark, this is the only, only time. Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. The only time we see that in the book of Mark. So this is not just a, a guy with a good posture, but he's a good guy in and of himself. All right? And he asks a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, what a great question. And by the way, if, if you remember what we talked about at the beginning, like he's talking about what must I do to be a part of the kingdom in the age to come? Like, that's what he means by this question. In other words, like, what does God want me to do in my life? By the way, like, if you ask that as like, as a campus minister, I love it if you ask that question. I mean, right, in college, you're making tons of choices, right? You make tons of choices as a college student. Who are you going to date? Who are you going to marry? What major are you going to do? Uh, going to going to uh, pursue? What job are you going to try to get after you graduate? Are you going to take this internship or are you not? And if you are asking, as you engage all those questions, if you're asking yourself the question, "What does God want me to do in this?" That's that's amazing, right? It's a great question that this guy's asking, but it's not the best question. It's not the best question he could be asking. You see, the question that he should have been asking is, "Am I willing to receive the kingdom of God?" The question that you need to be asking is not what does God want me to do in my life, but the question is, are you willing to receive what God has in store for you? 
And the answer is often going to be no. Am I willing to receive what God has in store for me? Let's unpack this more, right? Um, imagine you're one of the disciples and, and you witness this conversation, all right? This rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. He's like, what must I do to possess eternal life? By the way, the, by the way this guy's dressed. You're going to be able to tell that he's wealthy, all right? Like, it, it, you know, it, this is the insight Mark has that this was a man of great wealth. I mean, you can tell by the way he's dressed. This, if you're a disciple, when this happens, he, he comes up, what, what's going through your mind as, as, like, as Jesus is, begins to like, talk with this guy? Funding. Funding, yes. I mean, like, as a guy who, who part of my job is, is, is uh, raising salaries for, for the apprentices and for this building, like, part of, like heck yes, like, funding. You know what I mean? Like, this is a big deal. I mean, this guy could bankroll us. And by the way, this is the way, like, that society worked. They had benefactors. Like, that's the way this society worked. I mean, like, they're thinking, like, my goodness, this guy can be like, he can bankroll the, the messianic movement, okay? Like, we know you're the Messiah. This guy can bankroll everything that we want to achieve, every good thing that we want to do. I mean, that's what's going through their mind. And then Jesus, like, has this cryptic thing where he's like, who are you to say that I'm good, you know? Which, by the way, they lived in, like, this honor-shame culture. So this guy's like, that's how you would just greet, good sir, you know, like, good Lord, like, you know, and, uh, and, Jesus is supposed to respond to this guy, good sir, yeah, you know, and answer his question. And Jesus is like, why would you call me good? Now, why do you think Jesus is doing that, right? He's like, why would you call me good? Who's good but God alone? In other words, he's like, hey, you need to recognize who I am and what I'm about to say. Because if, you, if I am good, if you want to say that I'm good, then you have to listen to what I'm about to say. And he you know, gives them the Ten Commandments, and then he, he's like, okay, I've done that. And then he says, all right, fine, that's great. Here's the one thing you... By the way, hear the phrasing. Here's the one thing you lack. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor. And come and follow me. Now, if you're a disciple, and you saw this man as like, okay, this guy's going to bankroll the kingdom for us. What's going through your mind as you witness this conversation? What are you? It's the same as last time. What are you? You're confused. Ben, what are you? You're mad. Jesus. <laughs> Let's get our act together, all right? We've put up with a lot of things. We've put up with all your weird sayings. We've put up with the fact that you keep telling us that you're going to go die, even though the Messiah's not supposed to. You said all these things. we put up with it all. But my goodness, when a guy comes with money, all right, let's get down to brass tacks here, all right? You don't, you don't say no. You don't tell him to give it to the poor. You tell him to give it to us or, like, Go live in your rich house and like send us donations every now and then. That's what you say to this guy. And you're very confused by that phrasing. Jesus, he lacks nothing. He has everything. His hands are what? Full. That's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem. His hands are full. And Jesus is about to explain that very reality to them, why that could be the problem, right? I mean, that's so counterintuitive. What does he lack? He lacks empty hands. He lacks being like the children that we just read about. All right? So keep all this in mind. All this is happening fairly quickly for the disciples, right? They've had these two experiences. The guy leaves 
The disciples are, at, at, at best, they're confused. At worst, they're really ticked off at Jesus, right? So Jesus turns around to them. Pick up in verse 23. Jesus turns around to them, and he says to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. By the way, just to add another layer of just confusion on this whole thing. The way they interpreted wealth was that it was a sign of God's blessing in your life. All right, so when Jesus said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? What they hear is, how hard is it for the, those who are blessed by God to enter the kingdom of God? All right, it's just like totally, I mean, Jesus is breaking all the categories that they have. All right. But Jesus said again, someone said the next word. Jesus said again, what? Children. Children. You see that? They're children. We're going to see what he means by that in a second. Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The camel, by the way, that's going to be the largest animal any of these guys had ever seen. The eye of the needle is going to be the smallest thing any of these guys had ever seen. All right, Jesus is just using hyperbole. He does it a lot. He's not like, he is serious, but he's not literal. All right, he's serious. He means what he says. But like, he, he is using hyperbole, right? We all, we, all, we all use hyperbole. All right. And it was common then to use it. So, um, The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Do you hear how they're like children at this point? They have nothing left. They have empty hands. To society, these men are expendable, fragile, empty-handed. We have left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. By the way, when you read fields, read source of income. For me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus is trying to explain to the disciples the confusion that they had about the children and then the rich young ruler. Why the children, the empty-handed, fragile... Man, this thing's had a rough semester. You could say you were empty-handed. I was empty-handed, thank you. Empty-handed, it still works. The empty-handed, fragile, um, expendable children could receive the kingdom of God, but the one who we perceived as blessed by God, the rich, the influential, the important, couldn't. Jesus explaining to them in this why. So, so I just want to point out four things, and we'll be done. All right, I just want to point out four things about the kingdom of God and how specifically it's received, all right? So the first is this, the kingdom of God is worth more than our calculation, all right? The kingdom of God is worth more than our calculation. It isn't that the rich uh, young ruler miscalculates how much he has, all right? This guy had great wealth, and he was right about it. He had great wealth. But rather, what he miscalculates is the worth of what Jesus was offering him. 
How often is that our story, right? It's not that he cannot imagine the kingdom, uh, right? It's, it's he cannot imagine the kingdom being more than what he possessed, right? But I mean, look, if you look on your, your text, I can't remember what verse this is, but it's, uh, Jesus says, you will receive a hundred times as much. Whatever you leave, you will receive a hundred times as much, right? So when Jesus says, go give all your wealth to the poor. So everything you have, give it to the poor. If he would do this, he would have a hundred times as much than if he walked away sad like he did. And how often are me and you in that same situation? Right? We miscalculate the worth of the kingdom of God, and so we don't do the hard things that the kingdom requires because it's too costly. We imagine the status quo to be worth more than what God can offer us. Right? How often do we miscalculate this equation and avoid confessing our sin to a friend? We calculate the shame and the guilt that would come along with that to be greater than the healing that God would bring if we would just confess. How often do we miscalculate and we date like the rest of the world, as we talked about the past couple weeks? Rather than trying to date redemptively inside our broken dating system that's led to a 50% divorce rate. We can't imagine the status quo, or we can't imagine what God has to offer being more than the status quo when it leads to a 50% divorce rate. How often do we miscalculate, right? How often do we miscalculate and avoid conflict? Because it would be hard. It would be difficult. It, well, I just don't work that way. Because we calculate the cost of conflict to be greater than the reconciliation that God has in store for us. How often do we miscalculate and avoid the margins of society that Jesus constantly is beckoning us towards. Because we see the idea of being on the fringe or with the socially outcast as too great a cost. But God says, no, that's where you'll find me. That's where you'll see my face and the most full in this present age. It's not that these things aren't hard, right? It's just like the rich young ruler. It's not that we miscalculate that these things are difficult. These things are hard. They are difficult. The kingdom is a difficult ethic to live by. However, how often do we miscalculate how great of a life it's pushing us towards? So, right, the kingdom of God is more than we can imagine. It's more than our calculation. But also the kingdom of God, hear this, is now. All right? The kingdom of God is now. When does Jesus say that they will receive a hundred times what they, believe, what they leave behind? When? In this present age. Christianity, hear this, Christianity isn't teaching delayed gratification. Rather, Christianity teaches that we aren't good at discerning what is gratifying. Do you hear that? It isn't that Christianity is teaching, you know, just... Delayed gratification, right? You know, just, you know, live a hard life now, but man, it's going to pay off in the end. Live a hard life now. Do, do the things that, you know, you think are going to be difficult. And you know what? You'll, you'll get to go to heaven when you die. That's not what Christianity teaches. What Christianity teaches is, from by the very beginning, right? Think about Adam and Eve and the, the mistakes they make. What Christianity teaches is not delayed gratification, but that we as hu the human species are horrible at discerning what is actually gratifying. And by the way, you know this to be true. 
I mean, you know that just if you reflect on your life, if you like look, you know, take the time and look in the mirror and you think to yourself about the, all the different things that you pursue and how futile it feels, you know this to be true. Think about all the things that we talked about miscalculating, right? We avoid conflict, and so we just we don't ever reconcile with the friend. We lose a friend, don't we? A good friend. Maybe the roommate. Whereas God was offering us, if we would reconcile them, who knows what God could do with that? Right now. The confession of the sin, right? That, that, that's so frustrating to you, right? Or, or the addiction that's so frustrating to you. Why does God want you to confess it? Not so you, you feel the guilt and shame now so that you can get to heaven later, but no, because it can usher in healing into your very present. Why does God want you to date like the rest, uh, not want to date like the rest of the world, but date redemptively? So that you can actually have a, a, a marriage or, or even just a dating relationship in which you honor one another rather than objectify one another. Right? It guards us from being objectified. Not like, you know, it isn't like, oh, well, you know, I'll, just, I'll just kind of tame my passions now so that I can live a better life later. Like, that's, not, that's not what, the, what Christianity teaches. Jesus came to give life and life abundant, life to the full. But the pathway to that is always difficult. It is always cross-shaped. It always takes sacrifice. But whatever we sacrifice, we see here, Jesus says we receive a hundredfold, not in the future, but in this present age. It's crazy. We don't receive the kingdom of God at the end of time. We receive it right now as we live by its ethic. So the kingdom of God is worth more than we think, and it happens now. There's also that the kingdom of God is given, not achieved. All right? Think of... Mark, this is Mark 10, verse 27. With man, this is impossible, but with God, but not with God. With God, all things are possible, right? This is what Jesus says in response to the disciples saying, if the rich can't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can? If the people that we think are blessed by God because of their wealth can't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can? And Jesus says, it's not about what, what merits you have. This isn't about you. It is about the object of your, it's the idea, it's not about the style of worship, it's about the object of your worship. It's not about your faithfulness, but the object of the thing that you put faith in. Think about the way the rich young ruler approached Jesus, and he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the children, the picture of the children is, they were being brought by somebody else, helpless, empty-handed, fragile, and Jesus is the one who initiates. Do you see the picture of grace there? The kingdom of God cannot be earned. All these amazing things that we're talking about in the kingdom of God, uh, the, the, the hundred-time blessing that God wants to pour out on you right now cannot be earned, but can only be received through grace. And then finally, the kingdom of God is not just not earned. Well, just let me let me point out a couple things about this. Sorry. I mean, like, this matters, right? Like, we live. Sorry, this is back to this idea that it's it's given. 
right? Like we live, this, this matters because like you live in a society that values perfectionism, right? Like, and this is the, this is the low hanging fruit here, but right, like social media and you could edit pictures and yada, yada, yada. I don't have to like explain all that to you. You know that. You live it every day, right? We, we live in a society filled with perfectionism. You live on a campus that values perfectionism, right? They want the perfect resume. They want these stand, they, the standards they put out there. You need to have this resume so that you can get this job and do these things. I mean, it, it is, it is pressure-packed, your life, your, your existence right now, for perfectionism, right? And so you live in this culture and narrative that you have to be perfect, right? But the kingdom of God works the exact opposite way. Maybe you grew up in a church that was pretty legalistic, right? And they basically taught, whether they realized it or not, that you had to earn your salvation by doing X, Y, and Z. And that's just not what we see here, right? Like, you look at, this isn't about what you do. There's nothing you can bring to the table. There's nothing you can do to achieve the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do to try to possess it or inherit it. Jesus has to give it to you as you come to him empty-handed. Maybe... You struggle with this in a sense of pride, right? Like you're just not willing to admit that you're wrong. Elise pointed this out, and I think she was talking about me. See, I got a little bit more Snickers there, and I appreciate that. Maybe this manifests itself in, in a way that you're not willing to like confess your sin to God, or maybe you're not willing to confess it to another because because you because of that cultural narrative that you know like oh I have to be perfect and therefore I just can't like admit these things about my life to God or other people. The kingdom of God and the blessings that come with it are not achieved, but given. Know that truth. Fourth, um, and finally, and this is where all of this is leading. This is where, where everything about tonight, everything that we're talking about is leading to, 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 to this point here. That the kingdom of God can only be received with empty hands. And think about it. The children come to him, expendable, fragile, empty-handed. The rich young ruler comes to him, filled with might and power and influence and wealth. His hands were too full to receive the hundredfold blessing that God wanted to pour out onto him. And how often is that our story? How often do you find yourself in the position in which your hands are too filled with your past? to receive the riches of the kingdom of God. Your hands are too full with the trauma that you experienced, the ways you've been hurt, and it's become a, a defining narrative in your life. Maybe it's the divorce of, of your parents. Maybe it's, it's uh, something that happened to you as a child. Maybe it's that you don't feel like your parents ever loved you. Maybe, I, I don't know what it is, right? But maybe there's some trauma in your past and your hands are so filled with that trauma that you can't receive the riches of the kingdom of God because your hands are just too full. By the way, go see Cindy. She's fantastic and wonderful in every way. She's our counselor. You can do it on our website, rfcms.org. But also, like, recognize this as a reality. How many of you, it may not be your past, but it's your present. You are too content with the status quo to receive the riches of the kingdom of God. Maybe you do right now. Maybe you're living life and it just feels great. And, and the thought, even if it's like a good thing, but the thought that it could change, it could, it could be altered, 
It's scary to you. Because you like kind of things. It's not perfect, but man, you, you, you've got control. You've got friends. You have things that you can post on Instagram to let people know that you have a good life. How many of us find ourselves so filled with our presence, our hands, uh, our hands so filled with our presence that we can't receive the riches of the kingdom of God, the hundredfold blessing of if we would leave these things that we may be called to leave and so that God can bless us with a hundredfold more. Maybe uh, it's, it's your busyness in the present that's doing this, right? You're, you, it isn't maybe that you love life right now, but like you're just, man, you've got important things to do. You know, I've got this, I've got that, i got this and this and this and this. And, and, and you just have your hands so filled with your busyness that you can't receive the riches of the kingdom of God. Maybe it's not your past, maybe it's not your present, maybe it's your future that your hands are so filled with. <laughs> I want this life in the future. Therefore, in college, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And you live in that anxious cycle. If I don't do X, I don't get Y. I don't do X, I don't get Y. I don't do X, I don't get Y. And you live in that cycle. And this is me. And this is where I live. I live in that cycle. If I don't do X, I don't get Y. And it pushes you and it drives you and it fills your hands and you are just so consumed with that and your hands are so consumed with that that if you, you, you can't drop it, you can't let it be so that you can then have empty hands to receive the abundance of the kingdom of God and all the blessings that are going to come along with it, the hundredfold blessings that are going to come along with it, right? You, we don't have to worry about our future. We live for a God whose future is more secure than anything we could possibly imagine. The creator of the universe, the one with, uh, in whom we live and move and have our very being, wants to pour out a hundredfold blessing if you're willing to give away your future for a future that he might have in store for you. Yes, it might be difficult. Yes, it might be, 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 be hard. Like, I mean, think about like, you know, uh, what you could do with your life. Micah, who's going to come to our spring retreat, could have been a lawyer. Um, I mean, he is, I mean, I, I, so I almost want to mute this because Micah's arrogant and I hate Micah, but um, the... Uh, he don't want him to hear this, but like Mike is literally one of the smartest people I've ever met. Like I've, he was a philosophy major in college. He um, and I talked to some of his professors, like when we were going to hire him, and like he said, like top three smartest guys I've ever talked. I mean, like this guy's brilliant. Could have done whatever he wanted to with his life. Could do computer. He could drop his job right now and do computer programming. Make you know well over a hundred thousand bucks if he wanted to a year if he wanted to. Right? Could have been a lawyer. Could have made lots of money. He makes a measly salary as a campus minister. But he loves his life. And he loves college students day in, day out. Right? I mean, like, I mean, he's a guy I look up to. I mean, you know, I mean, like, that's beautiful, right? Like, that's beautiful. But what did he have to do? He had to empty his hands of the future that he thought he could have in store for himself so that he could then receive that life that he would tell you is totally worth it. And then so. That is a hundredfold blessing beyond anything that he could have imagined for himself. So is it your past, is it your present, or is it your future? As always, uh, we're going to break up into groups. Uh, by the way, this passage does have to do a lot with money. I encourage you on Sunday night, come to small group, and we're going we're to talk about just that, how this passage has to talk about money, so I encourage you with that. But tonight, uh, what we want you to reflect on is this. Um, what is filling your hands that keeps you from receiving the blessings and the riches, the hundredfold blessing and riches of the kingdom of God?